Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Welcome to episode six of Deepest Hell. I am your host, Leah Allen. Last week, I said that this was going to be a two-part series, but I decided since there is so much aftermath and numerous people involved that I want to go ahead and break it out into three parts. It is a difficult story to tell, but it's an important one given how prevalent sex trafficking and child abuse still are today. And while I'm thinking about it, I want to also mention that I have another three-part series starting the first week of March that takes us to Salt Lake City and New York City. It is a psychological thriller about murder, a family, and its dysfunction that spans over three generations. I think y'all will really like it. And I want to thank everybody who wrote in with questions and suggestions. There were about 30 people who wrote in and there were four common questions plus a couple of more random ones. And I'm going to answer those questions in today's podcast. If you have any more questions after this second episode, please text me or email me and let me know and I'll handle them in episode three. Um, And you can do them anytime you want to because probably once a month I will do a random bonus episode with just whatever questions you have. When I ended part one of this three-part podcast about Cynthia Owen, she was 10 years old. She was singing Scarlet Ribbons for her parents and a male guest who wasn't named. The said guest went on to his car to fetch cigarettes and booze for Peter and Josephine as well as some cash of an unknown amount as payment for spending the night or at least some amount of time that night with Cynthia. Peter told her that she would be taking him upstairs to bed with her and that she was to do as she was told. Cynthia was mortified and she struggled not to panic while trying to figure out why he was going to bed with her instead of Peter. Fearfully, Cynthia ascended the stairs with the stranger He wasn't nearly as scary as Peter, but she didn't comply with his lead or his instructions, so he got dressed and went back downstairs and came back up with Josephine, who was highly annoyed because she'd just been paid and did not want to lose her loot. She can't exactly fly into her usual rage because there is company in the house. So she attempts the diplomatic approach telling Cynthia to stop being silly and to allow the man to do what he wants, promising that he won't hurt her and that it would only take a few minutes. But he did hurt her, and it hurt really bad when Josephine picked her up and shoved her straight down on the man's penis. After the first few minutes, Cynthia blacked out. When she came to, she heard their three voices downstairs She had absolutely no idea what time it was, and she was still confused about what occurred that night and who the man was. It bothered Cynthia so much that she couldn't get it out of her mind all the next day at school. She was so tired, as she usually was, from not getting the proper rest. She felt desperate to reach out to somebody for help, but there was nobody she felt like she could tell. And she really didn't even know what to tell. She couldn't articulate proper body parts or what oral, anal, and vaginal sex was. She wasn't even sure that what was happening to her was wrong. She just knew she hated it and wanted it to stop. There was one person she did trust enough to tell, but Esther lived in Wales now, and Josephine had already warned her not to tell Esther about anything that happened in their home. She tried to convince Cynthia that Esther hated her and the entire family. That Esther was snobbish now that she'd moved away and had a self-sustaining career. Knowing about the abuse would cause Esther to hate Cynthia even more. Cynthia was well aware by now that Josephine was a liar. And she didn't trust anything Josephine told her. But still, Cynthia never wanted to anger Josephine out of fear and beatings. I want to interject here for a moment because many of you messaged me about the older sisters, Esther, Catherine, and Margaret. 
You asked if they were prostituted out or forced to have sex with Peter. If you remember in the beginning, I mentioned that Cynthia was telling this from her memories and about her and not her siblings. So I won't elaborate any further on this except to say that there is going to be more in episode three that addresses this very thing. With all that being said, I think that there are some things that do indicate that they were abused and assaulted, at least to some degree. I suspect that that's one reason Josephine forbade Cynthia to tell Esther, because she knew now that Esther was safely in another country. She wouldn't hesitate to expose her and Peter if she had knowledge of the abuse of the younger children. At this point, Josephine has decided that prostituting Cynthia is a sound long-term financial plan, one that will keep her in beer and cigarettes and spending money because there's no shortage of savage, perverted men who will pay for using a child. This includes Uncle Frank, who is married to Josephine's older sister, Aunt Mag. And guess what? Aunt Mag is a bit of a skank and a pervert, too. Cynthia was surprised to see Frank sitting in their living room one day after school, He was heavy, and he was always sweaty and smelly and drooling. Josephine first told Cynthia to sit on his lap. Then she demanded that Cynthia give him a kiss. The lustful way he ogled her reminded Cynthia of a stranger that she was forced to take to bed with her after singing Scarlet Ribbons. She felt nauseated. Frank offered her ten shillings, but she isn't the least bit tempted. An angry Josephine tries to goad her, and she's visibly upset because she's already made the deal with Uncle Frank and she doesn't want to give up the booze and the cigarettes. When Cynthia decided to deliver a quick smack on the cheek, Uncle Frank pounced in with all his tongue in drool. I simply cannot imagine how confused and disgusted Cynthia must have felt. But when she aired her grievances about it to Josephine, she was told that she was an ungrateful bitch and to just shut up and take the money next time. Those two words echoed in Cynthia's mind. Next time. Cynthia didn't have to wait long for next time. One seemingly innocent evening, not long after Uncle Frank's nasty kiss, Cynthia was rocking out to the Beatles and the Stones in their living room. Josephine is usually not so cheerful, but this evening she is, and she's prodding Cynthia on, encouraging her to take off some of her clothing, layer by layer, while she's dancing around. For some reason, the fire was roaring hot, and it wasn't particularly cold outside. Josephine opened the curtains and then the window, which was also odd, and it did not go unnoticed. When Cynthia catches sight of someone lurking through the window, she squeals, and Josephine takes off outside as though she's attempting to investigate. For someone who rarely stepped outside their home, her charade was nearly Oscar-worthy. After a few minutes of looking for Josephine, Cynthia sees her coming from the coal shed with Uncle Frank carrying a bottle of her beloved sherry. Cynthia was angry now, and her rebellion is growing. She realized it was a setup and decided to tell Peter. Peter detests Frank, and like her brother Joseph, Uncle Frank is forbidden in or near their home. Cynthia decided that getting her ass beat would be a small sacrifice because she has had it with Josephine and her lies and her schemes. Her primary objective is to rid herself of Frank altogether. Perhaps if Peter had been a normal dad and was home in the evenings, this plan would have succeeded. Cynthia did tell Peter about Frank sneaking around in the garden and peeking in their windows. The first of Josephine's retorts was to call her a nosy bitch and kept hitting her in the ear, which was painful and caused it to hurt and throb for days. Then she informed Cynthia that she would be going to Frank and Mag's for Sunday dinner because if Uncle Frank couldn't come over, she would just send Cynthia to their house 
Peter couldn't care less about that. Cynthia was perplexed when Josephine told her she was going to Uncle Frank's home for Sunday dinner because with the exception of Granny, they were never allowed into other people's homes, including other family members. Cynthia held out hope that with Aunt Mag there, she wouldn't have to deal with Uncle Frank. She was wrong. They were nice and cordial at first. Mag made a big deal about the dinner as though plying Cynthia with food would somehow soften what awaited her. The greasy mutton stew made Cynthia run to the commode to vomit. Bread didn't even help make her feel better. Soon Mag disappeared, and in a few minutes she called out to Cynthia and Frank from the bedroom. This caused Cynthia to be alarmed. Even more so when Frank gets up and pulls her out of the chair and pushes her into the bedroom. She sees Mag laying in bed naked. Frank strips down and joins her. With all that sagginess and laughter, they lugged Cynthia into bed with them. Tears were flowing from Cynthia's eyes while she quivered with fear. She could hardly believe what was happening. Not this. They carried on laughing and fondling themselves and Cynthia, and they did a whole lot more. All while this poor child was crying and pleading to go home. Finally, it ended, and they walked her to her front door. Cynthia was visibly agitated and sobbing. Peter was out pub-hopping as usual, not that he would have been any comfort to his daughter. Josephine thanked Frank for the sherry and cigarettes before she closed the door. She called out, same time next week? As Cynthia always did after being viciously raped, she sat in silence and sobbed until she could finally muster the strength to climb the stairs to bed. Before going up, she begged Josephine not to make her go back next Sunday. Without an ounce of mercy for her daughter, Josephine told her to shut up and stop complaining. She even complained and begged Peter not to let her go back, not to make her go back, all to no avail. Peter didn't give a damn what happened to Cynthia even with Frank, so long as Frank did not come onto his property. The following Sunday was worse because Frank and Mag weren't nearly as cheerful. They weren't laughing or pretending to be cordial. They were calling Cynthia names and complaining about her eating habits because every kid has an appetite when they anticipate being raped and abused, right? But the worst part was prior to relegating her to their bedroom and raping her, they showed her Aunt Mag's doll collection. Consisted of dozens of beautiful, beautiful porcelain dolls. Of course, what little girl wouldn't be in awe and want to play with them, especially since she didn't have very many toys of her own. She was quickly admonished when she reached to pick one up. Cynthia wailed in fear and shame as they called her names and then ordered her to bed. Through her tears, she realized how nice and clean their home and bedroom was. Much better kept than her own, yet these two were the most vile and dirtiest of human beings. Cynthia wondered how that was even possible. She tried keeping her eyes closed during the assault. She detested the feel of their skin touching hers. Their disgusting smell, their breath, their flabby skin, their heavy breathing... It was also revolting. And while all this is going on with Frank and Mag, don't forget, she's still being raped at home by her father every night, or most every night. After being assaulted for hours on Sunday afternoon, she has to go home to Josephine, listen to all her ranting and abuse. She does her mile-long list of chores and then goes to bed to wait for Peter to assault her. The next day, Monday, Josephine sends her back to Frank's house to pick up the sherry. And this time, what happened to be a bucket of narcotic pain meds, although Cynthia thought it might be candy. On her way home, as she passed Granny's house, her Aunt Anne was outside. 
She wasn't a nice aunt at all. Cynthia always tried to avoid her. As she rounded the corner, Anne waved and shouted, See you next week! This was concerning to Cynthia, given that her last encounter with Anne was Anne throwing a nasty bucket of mop water on her. Totally unprovoked. Once she was home, Josephine explained to her that their granny was in the hospital for a bit and Anne needed her company. Cynthia was apprehensive, but figured that it couldn't be any worse than being at home with Josephine. It was a bit of a stretch to think it might be a nice break. The first night when Anne told her that they were sharing a bed, Cynthia became really upset. A bed that was nastier than her own bed at home that she was sharing with Peter. Cynthia began having doubts about staying here with Anne. But she was warned before leaving home not to sass Anne or give her any problems. Getting into bed with any adult, though, had always been a horror for her. Surely Anne won't hurt her. But she thought Mag was going to save her from Frank. Inside, Cynthia is panicking now. Before she knew it, she was sobbing and Anne was pawing at her with her rough hands and calling her a dirty little bitch. Cynthia felt paralyzed and she knew that telling Josephine would serve no purpose. Josephine would tell her she deserved it. She lay there at the mercy of this heartless bitch, weeping and memorizing everything she could to take her mind off where she was and what was happening to her. Perfume bottles, jewelry, scarves, powder, a mirror. This arrangement with Uncle Frank and Aunt Mag and with Anne went on for months. But perhaps she did deserve it. Cynthia pondered that theory a lot. Most children do. They must be doing something wrong in order to suffer everybody's anger with them. It really hurt her self-esteem to be called a little brat, a bitch, a cow, selfish, and told that she deserves all the bad things that happened to her. Cynthia tried hard to be good, to help Josephine with her siblings and household chores, errands, shopping. She was a decent student who took her studies seriously even though she rarely got adequate sleep. The only things Cynthia ever complained about were being sexually assaulted and abused. Was she peculiar and bratty for not enjoying that? For complaining about it and pleading endlessly to Josephine to not make her do those things anymore? Cynthia was even grateful that Josephine was sharing her painkillers with her now, which was a daily habit because the alcohol was giving her headaches too. And she thanked Josephine often for everything, even though her brain seemed to be getting hazier with every looming day. That was because Josephine was giving them to her more than she even knew. Although she did catch her occasionally grinding them up and putting them on her food. But she never wanted to complain and seem ungrateful because the pills really did help. They made the bad thoughts disappear with the pain and it made her head feel like it was floating on clouds. Christmas time is about here again. And Josephine is heavily pregnant with her ninth and final baby, which is due Christmas Day. With all the rapes and abuse, it was very difficult to enjoy the holidays anymore. In fact, Cynthia wasn't enjoying any part of living. It wasn't lost on her that she didn't laugh and play like normal children did. It didn't help her esteem at all that Peter was trying to cheat her out of her usual Christmas money for a gift. But Cynthia loved babies, and she hoped that this little baby's presence would make her feel better. But Christmas morning was a letdown when the baby hadn't arrived. When it was time for Christmas dinner, it was essentially a replay of the previous year. Only this time, 
Peter raped Cynthia first, and then he ate his dinner in bed. Cynthia was thankful that at least he was behind her this time because she hated having to look at his face. So she stared at Peter's Christmas dinner on the bureau instead. When Michael arrived in mid-January, Cynthia was thrilled and she began pitching in right away to care for him. Soon after his arrival, 17-year-old Margaret announced she was expecting. That caused a huge blowout between Josephine and Peter. He demanded that the baby be put up for adoption because they already had too many children living in their small home. The fighting continued throughout the year until Margaret finally delivered baby Teresa in August. Josephine wouldn't budge her position, nor would Peter. After pleading Margaret's case and begging repeatedly to Peter to let Margaret come home with Teresa, Josephine walked out for three entire days. It was pure bliss, and for once, the home was a happier place. Nobody missed Josephine. But Cynthia did miss Margaret, and she was sensitive to her plight. She wanted Margaret and the baby to come home. Peter finally relented and agreed that Margaret and the baby could indeed come home, spouting off about how much shame had already been brought to this family. It is possible that statement was about Margaret not being married, but it was probably also in part about Josephine leaving him in the family and hanging out at random public places, smoking and drinking her sherry. Perhaps Peter was a bit embarrassed given his public position. Which is what I want to talk about next. Peter's public position. Because it's about to become a significant part of this story. I've already mentioned that the corporation of Dunleary was Peter's lifetime employer. It was a local authority in Dublin from 1930 to 1944 when it was abolished and its powers were transferred to a new entity. A city clerk position can mean a lot of things depending upon where you live. In many places, it is an elected position or one that's appointed by someone in high city government authority, such as a mayor. Regardless of how the position is obtained, it is a position that gives a person vast exposure to the city's most elite and prominent people as well as law enforcement, or Garda and Guardi, as they are called in Ireland. Many of these people are not only colleagues of Peter, but they are also his friends and pub buddies. Late one night, after Cynthia had been given narcotics and fallen asleep, she was awakened by an excited Josephine. She demanded Cynthia hurry and get dressed because Peter was waiting for them. Cynthia wondered where they could be going so late. Her head was pounding from the alcohol and narcotics. She was ordered to walk and try to act normal. It was a dark and damp night as they made their way through the dark streets and alleyways. They finally stopped at an eerie-looking warehouse type of building. Cynthia couldn't recall ever being there before. Josephine opened the door and shoved her inside while she remained outside. The inside was cold and dark. There were no lights, but there were a few lit candles placed around the room. It was like something out of a horror flick. She could see shadows and occasional silhouettes of men's faces, and then she saw Peter. But why was she here? Soon they were laughing and passing her around and touching her and doing whatever they wanted. They laid her out on the table and continued on. She was groggy. Her entire body felt so heavy. Her head and her eyes were shooting with pain. And they didn't, say, they didn't seem to care at all that she was in agony and crying. She went in and out of consciousness. She had no idea how long she was in there. The entire night seemed like a hallucination. Josephine was waiting for her outside. 
she sported a huge Cheshire grin when somebody finally opened the door and pushed Cynthia towards Josephine. Cynthia was so weak and ill that Josephine had to carry her home. She was still confused the next day, so Josephine kept her home from school. She knew it was the first Tuesday of the month because that's when the children's allowance came to the post office. It was Cynthia's duty to pick it up and do the shopping with it. Josephine didn't mention the previous night, but she did give Cynthia additional instructions before she left for the post office. There was to be no regular shopping that day, but some different errands instead. She gave Cynthia a list of a dozen addresses and instructed her to go to them and tell them that her mammy or her granny sent her. She recognized some of these men answering the doors from the night before. They couldn't get rid of her fast enough. In some instances, she was acting like a poor begging child, perhaps in case the wife was at home. But they all handed over bags of goods and sometimes money. By the end of the day, she was struggling to get home, carrying food, alcohol, and cigarettes and brown envelopes with money in them. This went on every Tuesday after she was taking to the eerie old building on Monday nights. Cynthia was always drugged when she went to this building. It made her easier to handle. She would sometimes hear their words echoing in her head for days afterwards about how much they liked her and she was the best and their favorite. It was as if there were others, perhaps on other nights. They were always nicer to her and more talkative on Monday nights than they were on Tuesday afternoons when she went by to collect for Josephine. Josephine often had wads of cash in her hand when they walked home on these Monday nights as well. But one Tuesday afternoon, Cynthia collected from these random men. She took the loot home to Josephine as usual. Josephine sorted everything, including the brown envelopes with money. She then handed Cynthia a brown envelope with some of the money that was just collected and sent her to her granny's house with it. Granny took out some of the bills and kept some for herself, and she sent the rest with Cynthia to Killarney to donate to the nuns. This is really curious. Was it a gift from Josephine to Granny? Was Josephine paying back a loan to Granny? Or perhaps Granny was getting a kickback for sending men to the warehouse on Monday night? It makes me sad and crazy to think that this is even possible, given how much Cynthia adored this woman and depended on her for solace and strength. Cynthia was 10 years old when she started her period. Just a few months after the Monday night, once a month Monday night rapes began at the warehouse. This should be a special time for a young girl. Learning about the amazing female body and the transformation from a child into the young lady that she was about to become. Instead, she was told she was dirty and she was forced to cut up old filthy clothes to use as sanitary pads. Cynthia didn't know what a period was, and she was mortified when she first realized she was bleeding. She thought at first she had somehow injured herself, but she couldn't even figure out where the blood was coming from. The men didn't seem to mind when Cynthia was bleeding, nor did Peter, nor did Josephine, who is now also participating in this sexual abuse. Josephine is also now covertly drugging Cynthia and more often. Cynthia's caught on to this ritual, though. It always happens right before she's about to be set up for another rape. Cynthia tries not to eat what Josephine makes for her if she can get away with throwing it out without Josephine catching her. One of the random men that Josephine allows to come over while Peter is pubbing physically beat Cynthia time after time. He stopped on her face, bloodied her nose, left cuts and abrasions all over her tiny body. She had to make excuses up to tell her teacher and classmates. 
Josephine knew exactly where they came from, but she refused to take Cynthia to the doctor because they didn't get free medical care, because Peter made too much money, and they weren't about to spend any of their money on her. It was difficult for Cynthia to go to school each day and try to socialize with friends. They had so many fun things to talk about, but she had nothing in common with them at all. She longed to be a normal 10-year-old girl who played outside every day with her friends and had sleepovers and laughed endlessly at silly jokes and had toys and was allowed to watch TV, who went to church with their families and had a family Sunday dinner. Her life was just so depressing. She looked and felt like she didn't belong anywhere. Just before turning 11, Cynthia started spending more time with Granny. Josephine would send her over to help out with cleaning and errands. And she enjoyed her time with Granny, who still spun tails and gave her delicious fruit. It was so nice to have someone to talk to. Josephine has also tasked her with caring for her four young siblings, Mary, Martin, Michael, and now Teresa, who were between the ages of seven and one year. Not only did she have to get herself up and dressed, but also the older two school-aged children. She had to feed them. She had to dress them for school. She had to feed and change the babies as well. I'm assuming she put the babies in some type of enclosure, like a playpen, before she left for school because Josephine did not get up for those babies at all in the mornings. Their nappies, as they call them in Ireland, were always full by the time she got home at lunchtime to feed them some lunch and change them again. Cynthia was still going to the store for booze, cigarettes, and food at least twice most afternoons after school. Margaret's moved away now, too. Peter's still raping her. Random men still show up in her bedroom and rape her many weeknights while Peter's at the pub. The monthly Monday night gang rape is still happening. Thankfully, she's seeing much less of her Uncle Frank Mag and Ann. And I'll go ahead and mention this here, although it's not in the book. I was going to save it for episode three, but according to testimony at an inquest in the 2000s from one of Peter Jr.'s former classmates, when he and Peter Jr. were about 12 years old, Peter Jr. admitting to raping Cynthia which would have been during this period of her life when she was seven years older older and older. This friend was so repulsed that he never spoke to Peter Jr. again. The start of fifth grade was an exciting time for Cynthia. Her new teacher was so kind and treated her like all the other students. She never gave Cynthia a hard time if she was tired or came to school ill-prepared. For the first time, Cynthia is excited about school each day, and she's having fun. Before this newfound happiness, she was still a prisoner of her own mind, worrying, having anxiety attacks about returning home from school every day, wondering when the next abuse would occur and what it would be. Her grades are improving. She's learned to bathe herself on the regular and to wash her own clothes, so she's no longer going to school with greasy hair and you know, smelling foul. She was so proud of her achievements and how seemingly well life was flowing for her. For once, she didn't feel so overwhelmed by all the bad things that were still going on. Peter even got a family dog. It kind of took the place of her two older sisters that moved away. In the fall of 1972, after Cynthia turned 11 years old, she started feeling really sick. She couldn't pinpoint exactly what kind of sickness it was, but it wasn't like eating something that made you feel bad or just, you know, something that wasn't agreeing with you. It wasn't exactly the same sick feeling she got after Josephine crushed up Valium and put it in her food either. But it was just an overall queasiness and dizziness that was constantly lingering. Sometimes it got worse, but it never got totally better. She mentioned it to Josephine because she thought it was related to the pills 
and she'd rather be sick with headaches than to take any more pills from Josephine. When Cynthia explained how she was feeling, Josephine seemed to understand what the problem was and told her to drink a pint of salt water and to use as much salt as she could. I'm not sure what this was supposed to accomplish. I googled salt water in pregnancy and I didn't come up with anything other than it caused a lot of it could cause some serious edema. It didn't do anything to help poor Cynthia anyway, except make her thirsty. The sickness never went away, but she stopped complaining to Josephine and went on. In a few months, she was feeling movement. It felt like butterflies fluttering around in her belly. She went to Josephine again for relief. This time, she was given a dose of some kind of fishy-tasting liquid. More nasty salt water and raw eggs with liver. Again, none of this helped, and Cynthia went on. Being sick made her resist Peter on occasion. Get here now, was what he always yelled at her. Sorry about my dogs barking. That was his usual command for sex with Cynthia. Get here now. Resisting was cause for Peter to bind her with his belt and keep her still. She fantasized about being sick all over Peter so he'd have to stop. How this poor child never threw up with all the filthiness and vile fecal fecal odors with morning sickness is beyond me. (laughs) A few more months go by and Cynthia is now feeling kicks. And she knows they're kicks. They're no longer butterflies. But she couldn't figure out what could possibly be inside her stomach. She has no idea that she's carrying a baby even after Josephine had three babies and after Margaret had Teresa. But she knows something is wrong and she's concerned now. Once again, she doesn't know who she can turn to or even how to explain what this issue is or if she should tell somebody in case it's a family secret that'll get her in trouble for sharing. This is typical confusion for abused children. Sometimes it's just a matter that they get used to not talking about anything out of pure fear. But she turns to Josephine once again. This time, while she's telling her about her concerns, she's making sure to stare at her in her eyes to see if she can gauge her expression. And she's looking for lies. For once, Josephine came out and told her the truth. She was having a baby. At first, Cynthia thought she was lying, because Josephine always lies, and besides that, only older women have babies, not 11-year-olds. And how exactly did a baby get in her tummy, she pondered. It must be a lie. Her tummy isn't even big enough. Then Josephine unleashed a verbal beating on Cynthia that she'd never forget and banished her to her bedroom. I'm just left wondering if this was Josephine's first realization that Cynthia was pregnant or did she know before when she was plying her with all that salt water and that icky liquid and food? Was she hoping for a miscarriage out of all that? All kinds of awful things were crowding Cynthia's mind now. Was she a freak? Like Josephine said, would her baby be crippled or disabled? Like Josephine said... Would she still be able to go to school? Could she sing? Could she have friends? She didn't want a baby to take care of. She was already mother to her siblings and a niece. She was just now beginning to enjoy her young life. Cynthia woke up the next morning and went to school as usual, exhausted from a fitful sleep and completely stressed about having a baby. Cynthia just decided she wasn't going to tell anybody about it. She ignored her ever-growing belly, except to worry that she was growing a disabled freak inside her. Because she was so young and so unknowledgeable, she had all sorts of senseless suppositions rattling around in her head about what would happen to her or the baby. Like perhaps it just eventually goes away, like a stomach bug or the flu goes away. Was it harming her inside as it kicked and moved about? And if it really was a baby, how is it going to come out? Being pregnant didn't stop Peter, Josephine, and a myriad of other assholes from continuing to rape and abuse Cynthia. 
Peter did eventually stop raping Cynthia after she got bigger. The closer to her delivery, the more Josephine fought with Peter. Nearly every night after he came home drunk from the pubs, Josephine would fly into a rage, cussing, kicking, and punching him, spitting on him, obviously angry and, and assuming that he was the one that fathered her. I mean, my God, it could have been any of these men. But Cynthia was still drugged and taken to the Erie Warehouse building once a month on Mondays. Even the men started noticing her growing shape and they made comments about it. They seemed to like it, at least her bigger breasts. It was hard to make out what they were saying sometimes given the pills and alcohol that she was forced to ingest prior to going. I just wonder if it ever occurred to any of these other men that that could be their baby that she was carrying. I mean, it just had to have. It's now in the middle of winter and Cynthia is just craving milk like crazy. And other different foods too, but mostly milk. Josephine tries to deny her milk because it's making her boobs get bigger. I mean, what in the hell? I just don't understand some of these people. In sheer desperation, Cynthia steals a bottle of milk from a next-door neighbor's front porch. Josephine somehow finds out about it and to teach her a lesson. She intentionally let a pint of milk go bad and set it out for Cynthia to find the next morning. What an awful, awful prank for a poor 11-year-old pregnant girl. Josephine thought it was funny that Cynthia got so sick and couldn't drink milk for so long after this. Cynthia's not allowed outside anymore because Josephine thinks she might fall. I should clarify, she's not allowed outside to play. It's snowing and all that. She still goes to school. But the truth is, Josephine probably just wants her to keep away from other people so that they don't see she's pregnant. She never really ever worried about her kids falling or getting scraped or cut or hurt in any other way. So Cynthia had to watch the other children from the living room window having snowball fights and building snowmen. Eventually she started staying home from school a few days a week. She was just so tired and not feeling well. She doesn't really get any rest at home because Josephine makes her do chores all day when she stays home. One day when she did go to school, the baby's birth wasn't very far off. Mother Dorothy summoned her to her office. She asked Cynthia outright if she was pregnant. Obviously, the people at school were aware that she was pregnant, if they had to ask. The oversized cloak that Josephine made her wear can't hide a full-term pregnancy and it's obviously suspicious when you never ever take it off especially inside a warm building why would she even confront Cynthia instead of Cynthia's parents or calling CPS and law enforcement the really sad thing is that Cynthia didn't even know what the word pregnant meant so of course she isn't pregnant But maybe if Mother Dorothy had asked if Cynthia was a freak or if she had a baby inside her belly, she would have gotten a yes answer. Or perhaps Cynthia would have lied because Josephine warned her not to tell anybody about family secrets. And let's not forget, Mother Dorothy beat Cynthia for having lice because that's a sure way to gain a child's trust. Although it was never trust Mother Dorothy was seeking, it was fear she wanted But when you live in a house with parents like Peter and Josephine, fear becomes a vast gray area. At this point, I'm trying, I'm starting to believe that Josephine is a complete moron. Why would you even send your pregnant daughter to school if you're trying to hide it? Wearing an oversized cloak that you forbid her to take off kind of draws attention, right? At the same time, when someone knocks on their front door, they send Cynthia upstairs to hide. But I digress. People know she's pregnant and they are willfully ignoring it. And they're complicit in this and the abuse. And that includes Mother Dorothy. Mother Dorothy did demand that Cynthia move her cloak, but Cynthia refused There was just no way she was going to do it. 
After a few more minutes of being berated, Cynthia ran from her office crying. Her punishment ended up being to sit in class, facing the wall with her back to her classmates. It was a small but fair price to pay as far as Cynthia was concerned. Nolene was born Tuesday, April 3rd, 1973. Only she wasn't given her name Nolene for another three decades. We'll talk about that part in episode three as well. Cynthia's 11 and a half now. It's close to Easter and Cynthia is really looking forward to it. She even went to school like she normally did and sat in the back of the class facing the wall. Soon it would be summer and that's all she could think about was going swimming with her friends Except that she knows she can't as long as the baby's in her belly and she wonders when it's ever going to go away or come out. She's huge and swollen. She's tired. And she feels the need to sit all the time, even though she doesn't really want to sit. She wants to get up and play with her friends. As skeptical as she is about Josephine, Cynthia is really feeling dependent on her right now. But Josephine has no mercy on her young daughter She's still pimping her out on the regular, and none of these men seem to care that she's pregnant. She barely makes the walk home on Monday nights from the warehouse. Josephine certainly can't carry her now. They don't have a vehicle, so they walk everywhere. Josephine has to hold her up, but she's also got a fistful of money, so she doesn't mind. Tonight, she informed Cynthia that a random guest was coming over again, so she should get ready. Cynthia is distraught because she's so exhausted, but she can't do anything about it. So she decides to go to the outhouse before getting ready for bed. About the time she made it inside the outhouse and shut the door, her water broke. It went everywhere. Cynthia thought she peed on herself. A lot of strange feelings were starting to happen now. Her back and stomach are tightening almost like she really has to have a bowel movement bad, but she can't. She hobbled back inside the house to find Josephine, who ran outside to the outhouse with a light. She sent Cynthia back in the house to sit in front of the fire. When Josephine came back in, she went to find Peter to tell him that Cynthia was in active labor. Cynthia overheard part of their conversation part where Josephine says in a whisper to Peter we will have to kill her as well as the baby in case she tells what happened then Josephine sent her upstairs to bed Cynthia made it upstairs but she couldn't get in the bed she sat on the floor against the double bed that Peter was in she tried to stifle the noises coming out of her mouth in order not to make Josephine and Peter angry but she couldn't help herself it hurt so awful bad Peter and Josephine got into a bit of a fight over her screaming and moaning in agony. Peter wanted Josephine to make her stop yelling. I mean, what the hell did they expect? But it didn't take long. Only a little bit of pushing and the baby was lying on the floor in front of Cynthia. But she couldn't reach for it because she was pushing out the placenta. Josephine came over and just started grabbing and snatching it out of her and scratching her with her long fingernails while she was doing it. It scared Cynthia so bad she yelled out to Peter for help. But Peter wasn't there to help. Cynthia wondered if the placenta was the disabled freak inside her. Suddenly, Peter's standing next to Cynthia with scissors and knitting needles. Josephine at first refused to take them and they got into a huge fight. Cynthia wasn't sure what was happening, but she was glad to see Peter helping. She was afraid to be alone with Josephine after she had a fit pulling out her placenta. While Peter and Josephine struggled and fought, Cynthia could see her baby, although the room was dark, but she was precious and not a freak at all. She looked so soft and pink and rosy, and her little fingers were moving. Josephine shoved Peter out of her way and picked up the baby. She drew the knitting needle above her head and repeatedly stabbed the baby all while Cynthia sat right next to her feet. Cynthia tried to scream, but nothing would come out. She stopped stabbing the baby long enough to rip the umbilical cord out and throw it on the ground. The baby's face was bleeding and it wasn't recognizable any longer. 
Peter stood there watching as long as he could, but he ran out of the room about the time the umbilical cord hit the floor. She was stabbing the baby all over, mostly in the neck and chest, but also in the face. And every time Cynthia reached out to grab her baby away from Josephine, she stabbed Cynthia too. She begged Josephine to give her the baby, but Josephine refused and threatened to kill her if she ever told anybody about it. The baby was still crying when Josephine put her on a blanket and left the room. Cynthia was in agony. She was still sitting at the foot of the double bed and in shock, about to faint. When she came back to consciousness, her legs were secured together with three of Peter's belts. She couldn't move. Her stomach was in severe pain and she began to cry. She forced herself to free her legs from the belts and was determined to get downstairs even though she was still bleeding heavily. Before she could get out the front door, Josephine screamed at her to get back inside the house. Cynthia obeyed and headed into the kitchen where she saw her poor bloody baby who was still crying. And to her further horror and shock, Granny was standing in there too. Josephine had the baby on a draining board and put her inside the unlit gas oven with the gas on until she finally died. Josephine took the baby out of the oven and disappeared. Granny opened the back door to let the gas out. Cynthia ran and locked herself in the outhouse. She found her baby lying on the cement floor. She was cold. She just wanted to hold her baby Josephine came in and ordered Cynthia back in the house. She took the baby from her. Back inside, she laid the baby on her stomach and began stabbing her again. She was just full of rage and anger. She turned her over and stabbed her in the chin and started berating Cynthia. Perhaps this was Peter's baby, but we'll never know for sure. The baby did have a dimple in her chin, as did Peter which totally enraged Josephine all the more. But all the time, Cynthia begged for Josephine to stop Peter from raping her. And now Josephine's blaming Cynthia for this. She just went on and on, over and over, stabbing that poor baby while she's ranting at Cynthia about how it's all her fault. In all, baby Nolene su suffered at least 40 stab wounds to the head, neck, chest area both front and back. Cynthia was sobbing and begging to hold her baby. Watching this reminded Cynthia of the way Josephine beat her and ranted until she finally got tired and couldn't go on anymore. Cynthia went back outside to the toilet and cried her eyes out, wailing as loud as she could, not caring who hurt her or that it was so late. Intermittently, she cleaned herself up as best she could with no idea how long... She had even been out there. She decided to head back in the house. All she wanted to do now was sleep. But that wasn't what Josephine had planned. She had the baby packed up in a bag and they left out the back door. She followed Josephine into the dark, damp night with no idea where they were headed. They were taking the back alleyway when she could... Let me back up. They were taking the back alleyways whenever, so that they could not be seen by whomever was out at this ungodly hour. After a good while, Cynthia recognized they were headed towards the Sandy Cove bus route. When they reached a certain point, Josephine demanded that they cross the street so that any police cars out this late wouldn't see them. When they got to the Sandy Cove pier, Josephine sent Cynthia down the slipway, which is what we call a boat launch in my neck of the woods or a boat ramp. Josephine told her to look out for a pram in the water, which is just crazy. But I suppose if you're an exhausted 11-year-old who's been traumatized and just given birth, you would do it without wondering. WTAF is going on. Josephine goads her into the water looking for the pram, saying that she wants to take it home with them. Before Cynthia could question her, Josephine shoved her hard down deep into the water until she reached the seabed. She was thrashing around, trying to steady herself, swallowing massive amounts of freezing cold seawater. Josephine was trying to drown her, 
While Cynthia was desperately trying to find a steady place to stand up, she heard a splash and realized that Josephine had tossed the bag with Nolene in it into the cold water as well. Fighting the cold temps in the frigid water, Cynthia maneuvers her way to the bag, barely able to remain afloat. I don't know if any of y'all have been ever been in freezing water, but it is miserable. You feel like you weigh a ton and it's so difficult to move. Miraculously, Cynthia manages to cling to the bag and make it out of the water, much to Josephine's dismay. I'm assuming that Josephine didn't know how to swim, otherwise I think she would have jumped in the water and drowned Cynthia that night. Thanks to Esther, Cynthia knows how to swim. Josephine is fuming now as she leads Cynthia down another dark street while she's holding on tight to the baby in the bag. Cynthia's ire is up as well, but she decided to remain silent. Josephine is capable of anything, and she had to keep her wits about her if she wants to stay alive. They traveled until they came to railroad tracks. Josephine told Cynthia to climb on to the top of the fence to see if a train's coming. Cynthia declined because she could look through the fence and see that there wasn't one. Josephine grabbed the bag in Cynthia's arm and they walked some more. For some strange reason, Josephine was becoming nostalgic, perhaps because she never left the house and now she's seeing all these old buildings where she and Peter frequented when they were dating and when she was a child. So many things had changed since she had made her last rounds in town. All of a sudden she wasn't so enraged and she even seemed to be enjoying herself. For a moment, while Cynthia was distracted, Josephine stepped away with the bag. After a few minutes, she made her way back to Cynthia and pointed at, Cynthia pointed out that she didn't have the bag any longer. And then Cynthia took off, looking for the bag to where she thought Josephine might have been. And she found it. Josephine was a few minutes behind her, so when she reached the bag, she opened it so she could see her baby again. But before she could get the baby out of the bag, Josephine snatched her up and drag, drug her through the streets away from the baby. Josephine is furious now, but Cynthia is fighting her and screaming for her baby. At this point, Josephine is wheezing and coughing a lot. It would warm my heart if she had been gasping for her last breath. She wasn't used to fresh air or walking. She was probably desperate for a cigarette and didn't bring any with her because there was no plan B. Josephine intended to take a short jaunt to the pier to toss the bag with Nolene in it in the ocean and to drown Cynthia and be back home as quick as she could. But plan A was a complete failure. She tried reasoning with Cynthia, telling her that this was for the best and that she'd never have to deal with Peter and other men raping her again. Cynthia was still fighting mad and determined to go back and get her baby. Josephine slapped her, and a man that was walking by stopped to ask Cynthia if she was okay. Josephine replied that she was a drunken gypsy, and the man strode away. Cynthia pled with Josephine to allow her to at least put her baby in a place where she could be easily found. Josephine relented, and Cynthia retrieved Nolene. She walked a bit before locating a proper place. Desperate to see and touch her baby one last time, she opened the bag and rewrapped her with the cloth, and she found some old newspapers to wrap around the bottom of her legs. She cringed when she found the knitting needle that was also in the bag. Cynthia said goodbye, and she placed the baby in a laneway. She sobbed and promised her daughter that one day she would avenge her untimely death. She bawled all the way home, telling herself that she would come back the next day and get Nolene. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it is here that I'm going to stop with the second episode of Cynthia Owen Living with Evil. I will have the third episode ready for you shortly because I want to have it out by the last day of February. Thank you for joining me today. Until next time, be the hope in someone's struggle.